Circuit Chapter 2 Richard, a handsome 30-something businessman who looks much like his little brother, is dressed in a bright yellow heavy weather coat. In his hand he holds a tablet computer displaying black and white security footage. Sleet strikes the window beside him, shards of ice glittering like glass in the high-powered security lights that illuminate this cliffside construction office, an Asian project manager watches a video over Richard's shoulder. In the security cam footage it's daytime and a gentle snow falls on a dam under construction. Several workers in bulky insulated coveralls are precariously placed to help guide a huge waspish turbine into a hole along the dam's smooth face. The ugly multi-ton unit swings from a long thick cable, and as it moves closer to the open pit in the wall, workers see a bomb has been attached to it. Shoebox-sized clumps of C4 are wired to a radio receiver. As the workers signal frantically to the crane operator to back the turbine away, the bomb explodes. The security cam video shakes. Intermittent images show the turbine falling, the crane falling, and several men falling too. Richard hands a tablet back to the project manager and looks out the window at a gaping hole in the dam through which water spills. The turbine and the remains of the crane are lying half in and half out of the water at the base of the dam many hundreds of feet down. Richard shakes his head and turns to look at the project manager and the five team leaders in the room behind him. They look a little like bees in their yellow parkas and radio augmented helmets. We all know they can tear the dam down faster than we can build it. This project is absolutely essential. It must go forward. Hazik, you do not have a technical problem here. You have a political problem and a security problem. There's nothing I or my resources can do to help you. If you and your company pull out you are making a political decision. One that will impact millions of people. You will be starting an insurrection. Richard looks at the assembled men. They all look bone-weary and cold. He looks out at the hole in the dam. I'd say a revolution has already begun. Please, Richard. A few weeks is all we need to get back on track. That is completely inaccurate, Umar, because the attacks will continue. The project manager turns and pulls a set of large drawings toward him. It's open to a page of numbers. Richard looks at it and for a moment, inside his head, the numbers swim, change color, flash and crawl. Two figures stand out. He points to the entries on the page. The attack cost you 6.3 million. You are losing more than 400,000 every day that construction is stalled. The project manager points to another number. It's only 1.4 million to repair the dam and rebuild the housing. Richard looks at him. How much does it cost to rebuild all the men who were killed? We will lose as many men as it takes to move this project forward. Not with my help. You can't let a small number of unreasonable people control the fate of a nation. Richard shakes his head, buttons up his coat and looks around at all the assembled men. Didn't you know? It's always the crazy people who make history. Paige, a beautiful 30-something photojournalist, sits in an elegant and sunny kitchen. She's perched in front of a large monitor and she is uploading images onto her computer. Soft music plays while she works. She is looking at her images from a war zone in Africa. Mothers weeping. Children starving. Bodies by the roadside. An oil refinery on fire. The phone rings. Richard Maxwell. Please leave a message after the tone. I'm calling from Milkwood Community Hospital in Los Trenos, New Mexico. I'm sorry to say that Eddie Maxwell was admitted this morning at 2.45 a.m. He's in grave condition and it's critical that you contact us. Paige scrambles to get out of her chair and snatches up the phone. Hello? Eddie Maxwell? Are you sure you have the right number? I don't know any Eddie Maxwell. Yes. I guess Richard Copernicus Maxwell is a pretty unique name. I just didn't know he had a brother. 
Paige listens for a moment, then checks her pockets, then goes to the workstation table to pick up her cell phone. Okay, go. She records the number as it is given to her. Thank you. I'll have Richard call. Paige hangs up and then stares at her phone as if it's just grown ahead of its own. Then she hits a speed dial number. Richard is being driven across an airport tarmac toward a private plane. It's the middle of the night and the sleet has turned to rain. His cell phone rings and he answers it. Yes? He listens for a long moment, turning his head to look out the window at his waiting plane. As the car pulls to a stop, he opens the door. Richard walks toward the plane. At the top of the steps his executive assistant waits with a tablet computer in hand. Richard mounts the stairs as he speaks. I'll be there in 15 hours, Paige. I think I would rather call from home. He stops. He looks across the airfield. Yes. I do have a brother. I'm sorry I haven't mentioned him. We don't speak. We haven't for many years. We're less than strangers, Paige. I am literally the last person on earth he would turn to for help. Richard listens, then shakes his head. I'll explain when I get there. Richard terminates the call then continues up the stairs into the private airplane. Richard takes his seat, waves off the drink as aide offers him and stares out the window as the engine warms up. He snaps open the phone and speed dials. Fine. Call the hospital. Let them know I'm on my way. I'll reroute directly to New Mexico. If you would like to meet Eddie, meet me there. The plane starts to taxi and Richard buckles his seat belt. I have to hang up now, Paige. We're taking off. The Silver Eagle rider that chased Eddie down is on a cell phone in a hospital corridor. This time he's wearing a dress shirt, tie and doctor's lab coat not black tactical gear. But his piercing blue eyes and snow white hair haven't changed at all. He's got two collapsed lungs, a broken pelvis, and a fractured skull. I didn't tell you to kill him, Colonel. Did you tell him to go for a joy ride at 90 miles an hour in an RV built in 1971? Has he said anything? We are still waiting for him to regain consciousness, but we're set up to record whatever comes out of his mouth. As soon as he's okay to transport, I want him out of there. I'll do some calling around to see where we can put him. That may be difficult. The hospital tells me his brother is on the way. A black helicopter idles in the red dust of a New Mexican afternoon. Its rotors are blowing a cloud of thick sand off a helo pad that sits atop a small community hospital. Richard steps out of the helicopter into the sun. He looks crisp in a dark gray suit and white shirt. He has a Bluetooth device plugged into his ear and his tablet computer in his hands. He studies several pages of a virtual bank statement as he speaks to someone a thousand miles away from here. The transaction cleared a quarter of an hour ago. I'll move the resources into T-Bills overnight, then into the short-term loan program. The aide follows Richard out of the helicopter and walks past him, extending his hand to Paige who waits at the edge of the roof near the elevators. As Richard approaches, Paige speaks. Eddie hasn't woken up. Richard holds up a hand to silence her. Long term I'm thinking of the Brazilian project. The one we already discussed. I have to get some new numbers from them. I'll send them over when I can. Richard listens for a moment, then terminates the call. He looks at Paige who is staring at him. She is furious and she has been prying. The elevator doors slide open and Richard follows her and the aide inside. So glad you could join us. They emerge from the elevator doors and enter the hospital hall. Why does this bother you so much? That I've known you for a decade and you failed to mention a brother? Richard turns to look at her. I have explained this several times. You said you had no family. Because I don't. Well I hope you won't forget you have a wife as easily as you forgot you had a brother. Richard. Paige and the aide stop near a nurse's station outside a window they see you isolation room. A pair of nurses are in the area. A desk nurse is working on the station computer. Another nurse is filling in a chart on a clipboard. In the isolation room, Eddie's head is in bandages, his face is badly bruised. 
There's big tint that covers his lower body. Also inside the room, there's a 70-year-old man who could pass for homeless. He is dressed in blue jeans and a long-sleeved white shirt that's seen better days. He's wearing pointed alligator boots and a dirty straw hat. Richard turns to the nurse who is filling in a chart. I'm Richard Maxwell here to see my brother, Eddie. I'd like some privacy. Can you clear the room? Of course. Give me a moment. Richard's phone rings as the woman enters the room to speak to the old man. Richard answers the call. The desk nurse looks up. Yes. Move all of it into treasuries. You can't use that in here. Richard turns away from the nurse. Whatever rate you can get. We are looking at 24 hours. Maybe 48. The desk nurse rises. Turn that off. I have to go. Richard ends the call, puts his phone in his pocket and takes the earbud from his ear. He looks at the desk nurse. You know there are no studies that show hospital equipment is affected by cell phone use. Not a single one. She gives him a fierce look and returns to her seat. Hospital staff and hospital patients are quite irritated by them however, so I'll have you removed if you use it again. Paige reaches into Richard's pocket and takes the phone. She hands it to the aide. The door to the isolation room opens. The old man exits, spies Richard and stops. Richard? He closes a distance between them and embraces Richard like a long-lost son. Paige and the aide both move to see Richard's face. He is clearly nonplussed. Hello, Oscar. Richard frees himself without being abrupt, then steps back to put some distance between himself and the old man who is somewhat inebriated and wiping away tears. I never thought I'd see you again. Eddie said you'd even clean up. Richard's looks startled, then stern. Are you still working for Eddie? Not for years. Three? Four? I told him he had to stop. I told him it was too dangerous. They will get him, just like they got your dad. But, you know, he never listens. The sheriff called me when they couldn't find anyone else. Eddie bailed me out of the drunk tank a couple of times, so they had his number in my file. Well, I'm very glad you were here for him. I should get in there. Why don't you give your contact information to my aide? Maybe we can talk later. The aide draws Oscar away. As Richard enters the isolation room and shuts the door, Paige positions herself so she can study both Richard and Eddie through the window. Richard approaches his brother. He takes in the bandages around the head, chest and pelvis, the multiple bags hanging on the IV stand. Eventually he reaches out to take his brother's hand. Jesus, Eddie, what have you gotten yourself into this time? The white-haired man enters the room. He moves to the opposite side of the bed. Looking like a doctor he pretends to examine the readings on several machines. You're the brother, right? Richard Maxwell. Yes. I'm going to ask you to step outside for a moment. We need to talk about your brother's condition. How did the accident happen? Single car accident on the interstate. His blood alcohol was 0.15. His blood alcohol? I don't think Eddie drinks. The white-haired man ignores him. We're currently arranging transport to Albuquerque. Is it safe to move him? We don't have the facilities here to treat him. He needs surgery. Eddie's hand squeezes Richard's hand several times. Richard starts but does not look down. His attention appears riveted on the doctor. But are you sure it's safe to move him? It's critical. I am afraid I'll need a second opinion. We've already ordered the transport. Without my consent? We didn't think you'd make it in time. Well I'm here now. I need a second opinion, and I need some time alone with my brother. The arrangements have already been made. We have a team prepping. He won't be moved without my consent. Now please leave the room or I'll sue you for malpractice. The white-haired man and Richard lock eyes for a long moment. Then the operative leaves the room looking every inch the pissed-off medical man. Eddie's hand continues to move and Richard looks around. A small device is attached to the rail of Eddie's bed. It appears to be a microphone. Richard turns, slowly, to look over his shoulder. Paige, the aide and Oscar are watching them. The white-haired man is on his phone, speaking quickly as he steals glances at those assembled nearby. Richard turns back to Eddie, his hand movements have become more erratic, 
more frantic, and Richard looks around the room mystified. There are no scorpions here, Eddie. I promise. Eddie convulses, his eyes open, his head swivels to look at his brother. Alarm sound. A doctor in his 60s, a real one this time, races down the hall and into the room. Both nurses join them. Richard looks out through the window. The white-haired man is gone. The doctor in the room looks at Richard. Who are you? What happened? His brother. I already told the nurse. I don't know. I think he's having some kind of seizure. Richard steps out of the room as more doctors and nurses arrive to save Eddie's life. Richard motions to the aide. Contact Davis at Cedars in LA. Get Eddie's medical records sent to him now. Tell Davis I want to have my brother airlifted there immediately. Make the arrangements. What's going on? We're going to get Eddie to another hospital. The aide, already on his phone, walks down the hall. Is it safe to move him? I don't know. But I want him out of here. A nurse exits Eddie's room, disappears into a floor pharmacy, returns with a pair of vials. She enters the room and hands the vials to the second nurse who fills two syringes and then injects the medication into Eddie's IV. His thrashing subsides. Why? Because he wants out of here. How on earth do you know that? He didn't say anything. Richard turns to look at her. He speaks softly. Morse code. We learned it as kids. He's been unconscious since we got here. The aide has returned. Richard turns to him. The medical transport helicopter will be here in 40 minutes. As the sun slides down toward the horizon, Richard's corporate helicopter hovers above the white muddy back helicopter. While Richard and Paige watch, Eddie's stretcher is brought up in the elevator and onto the transport by the white-haired doctor and two bulky orderlies. Get that helicopter on the radio. The pilot reaches for the handset. What's going on? I don't want those men on Eddie's flight. We hired a crew along with the chopper. They have already been briefed by Dr. Davis at Cedars and Eddie's attending physician. A doctor, orderly, and nurse climb out of the chopper arguing to no effect with the three men who have pushed their way in. I need to speak to that pilot. He's not picking up. Without warning, and without waiting for the discarded crew to clear the pad, the medivac helicopter lifts off. I knew this was going to be a circus. Follow them. Get the FAA on the radio. Let them know we have a hijacking. You're kidding. Watch. They won't follow the flight plan. I don't know what Eddie's got himself into, but clearly someone wants him bad. Richard's helicopter follows the medivac helicopter which is now flying at high speed across open country. Damn. The FAA says they just lost their transponder. Tell them they have ours and we'll stay with the rogue flight. They are taking us into the canyons. That's some dangerous flying. Especially at night. You're up to it, right? The pilot smiles a little. Two tours in the sandbox. I can't believe this is happening. Richard's chopper picks up speed. Richard. Paige and the aide all grab something to steady themselves. The medivac helicopter enters the canyons flying low and fast. Its lights go out. They turn their lights off? Why would they do that? The medivac plane dips, flies just above the brush. Hold on. The medivac, navigating a maze of canyons, switches direction over and over again at the last second. The pilot shakes his head. I have to back off. He's going too fast and flying too low. He's going to hit something. And, as just predicted, one of the medivac's blades does indeed hit a canyon wall. The copter tumbles from the sky. Eddie's face is illuminated by the fire consuming the remainder of his helicopter. From within the wreckage he stares up, eyes unseeing, at his brother's helicopter hanging overhead. Standing on the hillside next to the wreck, Richard grimly watches his brother's body extracted from the smoldering steel by firefighters and paramedics. Paige weeps beside him. From the top of the canyon, the white-haired man speaks into a cell phone. He's dead. What do you mean, why? Because my pilot didn't expect pursuit. 
You didn't tell me Richard Maxwell was as crazy as his brother. Circuit by Nancy Fulton. Story and voice copyright 2020 by Nancy Fulton. All rights reserved. Produced by AudioIron.com.